Blog Talk Radio. Chatting with Sherry is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They've been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for the creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. I am so excited to share with you this recorded interview with film editor Jason Summers about the documentary about Natalie Wood called Natalie Wood Re- Remains Behind. Um, I'm a little excited and my throat's going out, so sorry about that. Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind. Just want to make sure her, the title of the documentary is clear. Uh, this is a recorded interview, and um, please don't call in, but please enjoy. Here's Jason. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the show. Hello. Um, thank you for uh, taking the time to come on and chat with me. Thank you for having me. Um, could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. I was uh, born in San Francisco and um, kind of born into the film industry. My father um, worked as a re-recording mixer for Skywalker Sound for George Lucas's company. Ooh, cool. <laughs> for about 25 years as I grew up. His first uh, his first job was The Empire Strikes Back. That is super. And um, so I kind of grew up around the film business and um, fell in love with films. Did and he, ultimately, yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. Did he did he work on other stuff like for George Lucas? Yeah. So his his first job was he was the apprentice to a guy named Ben Burt who's my godfather, and Ben Burt created all of the sound effects for Star Wars, so the lightsaber, R2-D2, Chewbacca, everything. Cool. And um, he was his apprentice, and then ultimately became a, um, a mixer there, so he mixed Return of the Jedi, um, he worked on E.T., Raiders, Ooh, Indiana Jones, how cool. <laughs> Yeah, he was Academy Award nominated for um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, I love that one. Yeah, and he uh, he won four Oscars in his career so far. He's still working. He did, um, his first Oscar was for Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Um, the next one was Jurassic Park. Private Ryan and Titanic. They're all very. It's a very diverse group. <laughs> yeah. They're all very different movies. Yeah, he he works with with different filmmakers. He works with Jim Cameron a lot. He worked with Spielberg for a good portion of his career, and um, and then just all the movies that came up there and mixed in Northern California at Skywalker Ranch. And uh, in my little dream, you told me that you kind of grew up at Skywalker Ranch. Yeah, it was kind of, you know, it was was my dad's office, basically. So, you know, I was out there a lot, you know, for picnics or things like that. Or as I got older, my brother and I were fighting during the summer and we weren't in school. Then uh, we had to be separated and my dad would take me to work and I would just kind of hang out on the ranch all day, which when you're, you know, 13 years old, it gets a little boring out there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I did, but it was beautiful. It was a be- it's beautiful surroundings, and, and I did get to watch my dad work and watch a lot of, you know, the, the post-production process happen for films. Um, did it help you to um, want to get into it, uh, the movie industry, or was that later when you were older? No, I was always interested in film and interested in storytelling, you know, um, I, you know, I read books, I drew comic books um, as a kid, and I made my own films in the backyard with my brother on, you know, 8mm video. Um, so I was definitely into film. Everyone always asked me, you know, why didn't you get into sound? 
while I appreciate sound and it's part of what I do, um, I was always more interested in the storytelling aspect of it. Where for my dad, he he's not a big fan of movies. He he actually he's a big sound of audio. Wanted to be in the music industry actually, and kind of fell into the uh, the film industry once he could once he couldn't find a job in the music industry. <laughs> That's a weird switch. <laughs> yeah. You know, I guess it worked out, and um, he still, to this day, is very passionate about sound. He, he, he's won the um, car audio comp national car audio competitions a couple times. He builds, like, he's, he's built a 5.1 system in his car for sound, and it's, he always wants to show it to everybody, and he's always tweaking it and modifying it, and it's his obsession, for sure. That's pretty cool. Um, I can't remember his name. When I was a little girl, my dad was really good friends with a guy who was a prop man master for the Wild Wild West TV series with Robert Conrad and Ross Martin. And he had a workshop in his garage, which wasn't a garage, it was a workshop. So when he had barbecues, he let us have at it, so we got to play with a lot of the, because by then the show was gone. Um, <laughs> uh, we got to play with a lot of the props from the Wild Wild West, so I was thinking when you were saying that you were at the ranch, you got to play with some of the stuff, even, I don't mean actually, you know what I mean, have fun with some of the yeah, stuff they, that's there. Yeah, they had all those things, they're all kind of like behind glass, right? They had the idol from... Raiders of the Lost Ark, they had lightsabers and different things, and it was all in kind of like, you know, plexiglass boxes and stuff, so we could look at it, can't really play with it. Um, when I was really young, I was probably like six or seven, we were trick-or-treating, you know, it was Halloween, and um, uh, we were at a Halloween party, and um, Ben Burt and my dad showed up, walked into the party, dressed in, as stormtroopers in actual stormtrooper outfits from the Oh, song. wow. <laughs> and, you know, and I think what I've told is, you know, I have pictures from this night, but what I told is instantly all the kids started crying. <laughs> so they had to take the helmets off and reveal that. Oh. <laughs> all the kids freaked out. Everybody got crying. scared. And, yeah, everyone got scared, and, and but they had the actual prop gun from the movie and everything, and and then after you know they showed it with them, then everyone wanted to take pictures with them, and I have pictures of that, and, and of me. I think I was the Hulk that year, but I was the Hulk. I'm, I have a picture of me as the Hulk holding a, an actual stormtrooper rifle from the movie. <laughs> Weird combination. <laughs> myself I was an archaeology major 
But I minored in film. And everybody goes, what, oh. do they, what do they have in common? I said, they both are about people. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah, it was during that period. Raiders just came out, and my introduction to archaeology teacher started by saying, I don't wear a whip. I don't. <laughs> Nobody's chasing me. I'm not chasing anybody. Um, <laughs> It was a, it was like where everybody's laughing. I mean, she was really funny saying because she was saying it in a funny way. But yeah, that was part of the lecture. Everybody knew that everybody else was sort of influenced by Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones. Probably, but they still are. Oh yeah. I mean, I still can't resist. Um, they recently had the one your dad. Did uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and I, I think we came in on the scene where he was rescuing his dad, and we were just flipping and we looked at each other and we left it on because it was like <laughs> you can't, I can't resist uh, Harrison Ford and Sean Connery together. They're just adorable. <laughs> yeah, I, I struggle between which is my favorite, the first or the third. Because of that Sean Connery factor, and I really love both of those. I do too. I do too. Um, oh, and well, because Karen Allen was in the first one too. She was so adorable in that. Oh, and Will Follow is in all of them. <laughs> is he in the second one? I, I, no, wait, no, he isn't. He isn't in, in, in Doom. No, he was in the first one, the third one, and the fourth one. Mm hmm. Um, but I do, I love the indie movies, so and yes, I still can't resist it. But I'm not the only one. I watch a show on um, on TV every week, uh, um, Exploration Unknown with Josh Gates, and he's a huge Indiana Jones fan, and he's an archaeologist. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, we're actually going to talk about your film that you just, uh, was recently on HBO called, um, Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind, and you were the editor on it. How did you get involved in the project? So, um, when I, you know, came to L.A. ultimately after, um, college, um, I worked at uh, DreamWorks Amblin in post-production there. Um, I kind of was already after college and during college gravitating more toward post-production and the editing process. I worked on I worked on some films in production as a production assistant. Um, actually, I, just as I was about to graduate, I worked on um, The Matrix 2 and 3 um, as a set PA. Um, and that's was kind of the time and a bunch of commercials too and that was kind of when I realized that I didn't want to be on set that being on set during the actual filming for me personally uh, was really boring <laughs> and labor intensive and it was just I was just like it's a lot of hurry up and wait mm -hmm. just like standing around and waiting for lights to be set up and I just I just was gravitating more toward the, the editorial process of, of actually having all the pieces and putting the story together. So um, coming out of college, I knew I wanted to get into post-production. And um, I worked on a television show called Roswell. Um, That's a good one. A good show. Yeah. Um, the third season there, I was the... Um, um, the editor, or I was the post-production PA, basically. That was my first job when I came to L.A. on Roswell. And um, uh, then that show got canceled, and I worked on it. Um, I got a job as the editorial PA on a, on a horror film called The Ring for DreamWorks. Mm -hmm. And then after that, um, I got hired into the post-production office at DreamWorks as a PA, and then I became the... Um, for a second assistant to the head of post-production there, a man named Marty Cohen. And while I was there, I was 
doing a lot of office work, you know, and we were, you know, dealing with the post-production of all the DreamWorks movies that were being produced at that time. This is around 2002, 2003. And it was in that office that I met a man named Laurent Bouzereau, who would come in sporadically while we were there because he was um, Steven Spielberg's documentarian. He would do all the behind the scenes for all the Spielberg films. Hmm. I didn't know so, that. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think he was one of the first person people that did that kind of behind the scenes documentary work on Laserdisc. He did the Jaws Laserdisc. I think it was the first one that he did for Steven. And so because I like film and he loves film, obviously. We, we struck up a friendship there at, at uh, Amblin, and um, at a certain point, you know, it, he found out, I told him that I was wanted to be an editor, and I was uh, cutting stuff on the side, you know, USC short films and different projects of my own and for, with friends, and, and he saw some of that, and he said, why don't you come edit for me? So in 2004, I left Amblin DreamWorks and I started uh, my freelance editing career for Laurent, and uh, that lasted that's lasted for um, 15 years, almost 16 years now. Wow, um, cool! Cutting behind the scenes um, projects for Spielberg and hundred, you know, I don't even know how many I've done hundreds. <laughs> that's really cool. And yeah. and uh, anything I've heard of for anybody? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, um, I mean, early on, I mean, the first one I did was um, the first one he gave me was uh, a Johnny Depp movie, Stephen King, uh, Secret Window. Cool. Uh, with, with Johnny Depp, that it was a Stephen King short story turned into a movie with Johnny Depp. That, and that was my first one. Then I did. A, uh, a bunch of Hitchcock films for a Hitchcock box set. Um, let me see if I can remember. They did Deliverance, Dog Day Afternoon, Red, Bonnie and Clyde. Um, oh, it's been a while. A bunch of Spielberg movies. Minority Report. I did the Back to the Future box set. I did a bunch of stuff on the Indiana Jones Blu-ray box set. Um, I mean, it's all on my IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> Look at my resume. <laughs> no, I just I you don't have to go through the whole list. I'm just I I always am curious. Um, I think it's cool. Um, how uh, how did the Natalie Wood um movie come about? Um, so so yeah so happen? so Laurent had. Just previously to Natalie Wood, he did um, a series for Netflix called Five Came Back. Um, and, you know, after that, he um, met with Natasha, who, and a producer named um, Manoa Bowman, who Manoa and Natasha, Natalie's daughter, had done a coffee table book together. And um, about Natalie and about Natalie's life, it's a, a beautiful coffee table book called "Reflections of a Legendary Life," reflections on a legendary life. And they had done that together. And then they, Manoa, actually had an idea of why don't they try to make a documentary? And Natasha was like, "Great, who would who would you recommend for that?" And he's like, "I'll ask my friend Laurent." So Manoa asked Ron, do you know anybody that would be interested in doing this documentary about Natalie Wood? And he was like, uh, yeah, me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so he introduced Laurent to Natasha and they hit it off and then the ball started rolling and they, they started pitching the project all around town. And uh, at this point, I was cutting other things for Laurent in the behind the scenes world and he came to me and he said, uh, you know, I'm pitching this Natalie Wood documentary. Would you be interested in cutting it if it actually happens? And I said, absolutely. And um, so that's that's kind of 
how it came to me. Um, it took a while, you know, for them to pitch it and, and, and have it ultimately land at HBO. Um, but HBO actually in the beginning, before they actually greenlit it and gave us the full budget, they gave us a, a smaller amount of money to, as an exploratory fund, to see if they wanted to do it, to go and gather gather some material and show them and see if they wanted to make the full commitment. So, with the exploratory money, we did two things that I that I put together. One was they transferred a bunch of old eight. Eight and sixteen millimeter movies that I don't think had ever been seen before. Um, maybe, maybe by the family at some point, but they were sitting in a in a storage unit. Um, so we transferred those, and these were home movies, home movies of Natalie and um, her life, mostly in the seventies with her family um, and the and the children. And those were transferred to video, and I took that plus some old, other whole old home movies they had of her as, as a little girl, and I cut about a six and a half minute montage or music video of the best of that stuff with some classical music to it. Um, so we, I cut that, and then I then they also shot what ultimately ended up in the film which was a uh, two-day, I think it was about five hours of total footage, a two-day sit-down interview between Natasha and her stepfather, Robert Wagner. That was amazing. I mean, in the the final film, it's just, wow. (laughs) Yeah, so the interview that you see in the film, that was actually shot prior to the film fully being greenlit. Um, That interview was shot with three cameras, and it was about five hours of footage, and I cut that down to a, basically like a 45-minute highlight reel. Um, and that 45-minute highlight reel plus the six-and-a-half-minute music video of home movies went to HBO, and they sat on that for about maybe two months. Um, and... That, that was, I believe, November or December 2018. And then I think it was around Christmas 2018 we got the word that we were going to, they were going to green light the movie and start production in January of 2019. Wow. So that was exciting. That is really cool. I told you before, I'm a huge fan of Natalie Wood. I'm actually a huge fan of Robert Wagner, too. Um, and I just... I found out about the film when I was watching another show on HBO. And I just was like... It was too far out to hold. You know how you can set it? And I'm like, oh my god! It's like three weeks out! And we're, you can only do two weeks. And I, was, I kept looking every day, and suddenly it was set... And it turned out my brother had already said it for me. <laughs> That's how excited I was. And he knew it because I kept, every time I came on, oh, no, it's not there yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it. It was really, if if you're not a fan of Natalie Wood, you, bec- you, you have to become a fan. You have to fall in love with her. Um <laughs> Watching. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was, um, you know, before, you know, when it was brought to me or when it was brought to me for the first time, I I didn't know a ton about Natalie Wood. I, you know, I was three years old when she passed away in 1981, and I had only seen four of her films at that time when it was when it was first mentioned that I might work on this. I had seen... Miracle on 34th Street, obviously, because it's on every Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, Rebel Without a Cause. Of course. And uh, West Side Story. Mm-hmm. And then I, I believe I saw Splendor in the Grass in film school. Um, but I had vague memory of it. I just knew, oh, 
this was Warren Beatty's first film, and, you know, I, I didn't really remember it too much. And other than that, my only knowledge of Natalie Wood was from tabloid covers in the grocery store. Yeah. Right? Like, did she, did she get kicked, didn't her husband kick her off a boat or something? Like, you know, like, I didn't, that was just my kind of, you know, initial knowledge. And so when when it when I was working on the project, even in that preliminary phase before it was even greenlit, I was starting to do a ton of research. Um, I read RJ's biography, or autobiography, um, Pieces of My Heart. I read um, two other biographies by her, one by Susan Finstad and one by Gavin Lambert. And um, I didn't read fully, but I, I did read um, a book by the um, by the guy on the boat the night that she passed away, um, named Dennis, and uh, his friend. They wrote a book, you know, basically accusing RJ. I read some of that, um, but uh, and then I watched all the movies. I watched, you know, from her childhood movies all the way through. So, um, yeah, and then as production started, Laurent did 30, 30 interviews. I think he might have ended up doing 35 interviews total in the end. But of all of her close friends, family members, you know, um, some film historians, you know, just... Uh, tons of people so at that point I was just getting you know the whole story about Hollywood and really um, absorbing a lot of information um, so ultimately when I started to cut the film I took two weeks and and, and really dove in and absorbed all the information and of the interviews that we had and then I sat down with Laurent and we came up with a structure for the film basically how we were going to tell the story and that's where we came up with this idea that the tragedy of Natalie's passing would be used kind of as an act break in the film that we would open with the film with Natasha's perspective, with her daughter Natasha, who's kind of a guide to the story um, throughout the film, we would start from her perspective of being 11 years old and hearing about the passing of her mother. Can I just say that I was shocked by that? I had never. I had. I'd read RJ's book. I had read several books about Natalie and Mary. I did not know that Natasha first heard at 11 years old her mother died on the radio yes that is yeah. the most devastating I actually had to stop the recording for a minute because I had to cry I was so upset that's just so horrible that they actually broadcast that before the family knew yeah she was spending the night at her friend Tracy's house and um, she was woken up by the clock radio saying that her mother's body was found. Which, yeah, it was so emotional when I heard it. I was, I basically, I was just like, this is how we have to open the movie. You know, this is just such a powerful, emotional, you know, kind of hook to draw the audience in. And one of the things, one of the things that I talked to Laurent about from the beginning was we have to, we have to think about who our audience is because there are so many people who are going to watch this potentially now and later on that have no idea who Natalie Wood is, right? She's been dead for almost 40 years. Yeah. And we had people, you know, younger people working on the film, my production coordinator, Tyler, and my assistant editor, Giselle, before they had even before they started this project, they literally did not know who Natalie Wood was. Which, at first I was kind of shocked, but they're in their 20s. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and I and I said, and at first I was like, wow, you don't know, and then I was like, I, but then I, I, I kind of very quickly was like, this is a good thing that you don't know who they are because you're going to be my test audience. You know, the movie has to be interesting to someone who doesn't know who she is. And so, or doesn't care about movies even, right? Because ultimately, in the story, when we were, as it was unfolding, as we were getting all these stories, what really unfolded for us and for Laurent, too, was that this is the story of a family. Mm -hmm. And that was something we really tried to stick to is, this isn't a, this isn't a making of documentary. Like, we, we've done hundreds of times before for actual, you know, studios, for, for Blu-rays. This is... We don't. We, I, we didn't want to do the making of West Side Story, the making of Rebel Without a Cause, and kind of just go down her film, you knowography and just tell the story to make it because those have already been done, right? They've been done on those, you know, Blu-rays or DVDs, and or they've been done in some form. We wanted to tell the story of Natalie as a mother, as a person, and as, as, as and about this family that she built. And, and we always said that, this, you know, the foreground is the family and Natalie, and the background is Hollywood, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that was just what she did for a living, right? And, and what made her famous, and obviously put the spotlight on the tragedy, and just still to this day is, you know, sells tabloids. Um, but we really wanted to have the focus be on Natalie as a person and that was one of the things ultimately in in the film that I'm the most proud of is how much we actually were able to get Natalie's voice into the film through radio interviews and archival interviews yeah I really actually this is going to show my age I remember every one of the archival interviews that's how big a fan, I mean, not when she was, not like in the early, early 60s stuff, but I remember anything from the 70s on, I was a huge fan of hers. And so, as you're, as it was playing, I'm going, oh, I remember that one. Oh, I remember that, too. <laughs> I remember when Merv Griffin said, do you want me to mention that you remarried RJ? I remember the whole thing. I mean, I, I have this weird memory. I remember everything I ever saw. Um... Yeah, so so um, so that was our goal, and so that initial um, the telling of Natasha telling that of about the morning when she found out was just so powerful yeah. to me that I, I that I said this is this is how we open the film, so that we just hook an audience, right? And one thing that I was um, that I that I wanted to do in that opening was not even mention Natalie's name or show a picture of her regarding any, you know, like fame or, you know, the first picture that you see of Natalie in the film is a picture, is just a family photo and, and it could be my mom in 1980. I just wanted to make people be able to relate to it not as a movie star, not as Natalie Wood, because in the first 90 seconds when she tells the story, she never says, my mom, Natalie Wood. She never mentions the name Natalie Wood. She just says, my mom. Mm -hmm. My mom died. My, my, you know, my stepfather came home. You know, it's just, it's just the story of a, of a little girl finding out that her mom is not coming home anymore. And then that story ends with her saying, my name is Natasha Gregson Wagner, and my mom was Natalie Wood. Mm -hmm. Then we go into the opening credit sequence, which you know is a mixture of personal photos and, and star photos. And then when we come out of that, we go into more of who was Natalie Wood as a you know as an actress. You know who was she? What was her public persona? And we have Redford and Robert Redford and Mia Farrow and you know, film historian kind of describing that, you know, that, that, that for a whole generation, people literally grew up with her because she was a child actress from the age of six years old till, till she passed away 
43. I thought... So literally... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, people. I was going to say, I thought it was really good the way that you guys showed what a powerful woman she was. Oh. Absolutely, yeah. And she was, she was a powerful woman because she was very intelligent, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. She grew up in the industry, so, you know, nobody could tell her how things were supposed to be done. She knew, right? This was yeah. her entire life. And um, and at a certain point, she had got, gained such star power that you know she could pick her scripts, greenlight movies. You know, she she had box office power, and and so she had the power to you know she fought Warner Brothers at a certain point, and 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 told them that she wanted the power to choose her movies, and she won that power. Yep. And um, and chose her leading men. Chose yeah, and and basically start the career of Robert Redford on yeah. film. Um, which I didn't know that before. I mean, yeah, I just learned so much that um, it was uh, it was really fascinating. But the, the other interesting part about her is while she, she had this power, while she had this, you know, intelligence and, and, and you know, she was also vulnerable. Yeah. She, also, she also had these vulnerabilities, you know. She had, you know, she wasn't sure she could hold down a relationship. She had, you know, clearly had anxieties and issues with her mother, you know, from being a child actress and having this stage mom that really pushed her and the pressure that she supported her own, she supported her entire family, essentially from the age of 12. Because her dad couldn't work, because he started having heart attacks. So there was this enormous pressure on her to perform and to support financially her family. So there was all these issues, and ultimately, for which you know there was there was a suicide attempt, and there was also years and years of very intense therapy she went through, mm-hmm. for which she was also an advocate for when it was not as accepted as it is today. She was an open advocate for therapy. I think that's one of the reasons she did Bob, Carol, Ted, and Alice is because that's what it was all about. Mm Mm-hmm. And it it also showed her as hip and beautiful. That helped, too. (laughs) Right. And that was was also the time when those type of, you know, it was kind of that scene in Hollywood and the hippie movement or that kind of like that, you know, kind of exploring your inner self and, you know, the, you know, it was kind of that, that weird time with, you know, swing, people were trying things like swinging and stuff. And even though I don't believe she was involved in it, I think she was interested in that. And I think she was also, she also knew it would be commercially successful. Yeah. I think she read the script and said this one. Exactly. Yeah, she knew that the you know, and ultimately it was, and she 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 was the one actress that got points because of her star power at that point. She got a piece of the pie of the of the box office, and it made her very rich. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing was that she was didn't she she owned her own production company, right? Because I thought she did like Sex and the Single Girl and stuff like that. But she was a producer. Yeah. Yeah, she she did have, you know, I don't know about at that time in her career, but ultimately when she remarried RJ, I know that her and RJ started a company. Um, I forget what it was called. It was... Rona. Rona 2. Rona. Yeah, Rona 2, right. Exactly. Which was Robert and Natalie. The second two, time. The second time around, right. And, and this is actually a section that I cut for the documentary that ultimately did not make it to the documentary, primarily for legal reasons. But they, one of the things that they produced that also ended up being a huge hit, which Wagner didn't think was going to be when they were initially approached about it, was Charlie's Charlie's Angels. I knew that. <laughs> they were one of the original producers, or you know, they had points on the original Charlie's Angel TV show, and I cut a whole section about that, and I had, you know, uh, you know uh, the music from the show and 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 you know stuff, but 
we couldn't clear it. We couldn't clear any of it. So ultimately, you know, it, it ended up on the cutting room floor, which, you know, I'm kind of bummed about, but, you know, those are the kind of choices you have to make ultimately for runtime and, and where you are in the story. I was a kid, but I figured that out really fast. <laughs> because yeah. it said I was a big Heart to Heart fan, and right next to Heart to Heart, it had, uh, when Charlie's, it had R-O-N-A-2, and when Charlie's Angels started, it had R-O-N-A-2, and I go, oh! And then I figured, uh, when, I think Robert Wagner was talking on one of the talk shows, and he, he was explaining about Robert and Natalie, too. Oh, okay, that's what that means, and I figured out Charlie's Angels was owned by them. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I did it all by myself. Nobody told me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was a that was a big cash cash day for them for sure. Um, so, what? Um, now, there's difficult parts in this documentary. Um, the big, most hard, of course, was about the part you had do did the earlier interview when he was talking about what happened. Um, how did that come about? Was that Natasha? Yeah, I mean, I think it was Natasha and Laurent. They had, um, you know, kind of discussions from the beginning that, you know, this was going to be something that they were going to have to deal with in the documentary approach, you know, and also approach with, with RJ. And she had, she told us that she had never, you know, directly asked him specific details about that night, right? Like, you know, tell me everything that happened, you know, minute by minute. Um, they had talked about it, you know, kind of in general terms, about things, but never directly, minute by minute, what happened, tell me what happened, and particularly not with three cameras on that. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that would have been hard. must have been really and hard. And, um, and, you know, RJ, you know, he's not, he's not young. He, I think he, he was 89, or 89 when we, we shot the interview. He's, he's 90 now. Um, and you know, it was tough, but he was—he was absolutely willing to do it. You know, he—he wa he wanted to do it for Natasha, and he didn't shy away from you know discussing that time. Even though I think you know, I could tell physically it was hard on him, and I was actually told that you know he didn't really get out of bed for like the next day or so. <sighs> you know, oh. I think. Yeah, just, you know, reliving that, and, you know, you can tell it's a very emotional oh, yeah. thing between the two of them, and so, you know, when we were plotting out the movie or the structure of the film, that was always something that we knew was going to be kind of the climax. It was going to kind of sit at the end of the second act, into the third act, it was going to be the climax of the film, and, and, um, you know, like I said, we were gonna we were gonna visit that event three times throughout the film. It was gonna be our act break. And the second time that we we go to it is when after we've introduced all the family members and friends, because that's kind of the second act. The second act is um, or no, the, sorry, the first act. The first act is kind of what we call Natalie builds a family. Mm -hmm. So that's when we learn about, you know, um, her first marriage to RJ, their their divorce, her subsequent relationships, the fact that not RJ had a child, uh, Katie Wagner with with Marion Marshall, you know, that's when you meet her stepbrothers, her stepbrother Josh Donnan, you know, Mark Crowley, who was a big part of her life, who since passed away. Um, you meet you meet Natasha's father, you know Natalie's second husband, Richard Gregson, who um, you know 
who has since passed away too. Um, and you know, there's her, his, you know, you meet all these people, right? Friends, family. It's now to build to build a family. That's the section. And then you we get to the seventies when they're all a happy family at, at the Cannon Drive house in Beverly Hills, you know, and then they buy the boat and everything's great. And then we go back to the news report as a kind of reminder, like, oh yeah, this happened. And now we get to hear from all of those people, their reaction, right? So we hear Mia Farrow's reaction. We hear um, how they heard Robert Redford, Courtney, obviously, um, Natasha's um, sister, you know, the the only daughter of RJ and Natalie together. Uh, Liz, their assistant, Josh Don and Katie, they all, you get to hear their initial reaction about how they heard about it. And then after you hear their reaction, um, Natasha talks about how her grandmother, Maria, what her reaction was. And then so that's how we introduce Maria. And through Maria, we go back into Natalie's childhood and we introduce the career, her career, her child career, because Maria was really the impetus for that, really pushed Natalie into the career as a child. And whereas Natalie obviously had talent as a child, you know, and and was amazing, you know, um, in her roles, it, she really didn't decide to become an actress herself until Rebel, Rebel yeah. Without a Cause. And she even said that in her interviews. So, um, so then we go through the career, and that's what brings us back to that sit down between um, Wagner and Natasha talking about the, that night and it was for that section that I felt like we wanted to make it feel it, you know, as raw and as possible so we don't cover it with any you know, photos or B-roll it's literally just the three shots and them cutting back and forth, there's no music it's literally just a conversation and we wanted that to feel as raw and it did. Yeah. <laughs> it really did. Um, it was very tough to listen to. And it was yeah. you really felt for RJ when you were listening to him talk about it. Yeah. It was just amazingly devastating. Sad. Yeah. Um And it's all, it's interesting too because, you know, there was this whole aspect, and this is this is what you know. When I was listening to the interviews, Josh Donnan, um, Katie's stepbrother, Katie Wagner's stepbrother, and you know, it's this big Brady bunch, you know, basically, you know, because we have all these marriages and divorces, but and then remarriages and everything. So there's all these kids, but Josh Donnan, who's in the film, um, who was older at the time, but living at the house with Natalie, and who become close. Uh, he was, um, I think he was in his early 20s at that point. He had, all, you know, this interesting perspective to discuss how Natalie was kind of struggling at that point emotionally between wanting to be at home with her family and her children, but also wanting to act, to get back into acting, to do this, um, to get back into her career. And it was kind of this back and forth issue that ultimately became a part of the argument on the boat between Christopher Walken and Robert Wagner that ultimately, you know, sent Natalie away from them, according to RJ's story, you know. And it just, that, when I, when I heard that story from Josh Donnan talking about talking to Natalie right before this incident about her about her dilemma, you know, because she was to, to take these to, these acting jobs was taking her away from her family for long periods of time, which the kids weren't used to. She wasn't used to it. You know, RJ was away shooting in, you know, heart to heart in Hawaii. And so she felt like she was abandoning her children to some extent when she was working and that was hard for her, but yet she still was really drawn to 
wanting to act and wanting to, you know, pursue that part of her life, her passion for that. So when I heard that, I was like, this is just so interesting. Like, this is this is the impetus that takes us into the final telling of that story. When Natasha uh, was talking to RJ, and she said that she uh, drew a circle around her tear, and then she wrote tear, boys. I, I, I brought me back to when I wrote notes to my parents. I'm, every girl does stuff like that. You know, it, yeah. it, it makes you relate to Natasha. I, even an old lady like me, back when I was a kid, did the same thing. I mean, when you were upset and you wanted them to know it, that's the kind of thing you do. <laughs> Absolutely. And, again, those are the type of things that we really wanted to keep in the film to make sure because again everybody can relate to that mm -hmm. right your mom doesn't have to be famous no you know and you know even if you even if you haven't lost a parent or lost you can imagine it right mm -hmm. like you can imagine that horrible feeling you know and so that was really what the film was about. It was about dealing with, you know, from, from the perspective of Natasha, it was about dealing with loss. Yes. You know, overcoming loss, loss of a child, of their parent, which is, you know, unimaginable. And Courtney, too. Courtney, with Courtney Natasha's sister, the, the actual daughter of Natalie and RJ, when I watched her interview, I was in tears. The yeah. raw interview. Yeah. And, you know, it was it was very raw, you know. If you know, if you watch Natasha's interview, you know. I mean, she's a producer on the film, and she's very, you know, she's composed and she's very, you know, put together. And there's almost a bit of a guardedness there to her, um, in a sense that you know Natasha was an actress herself. You know, she's used to being on camera, and then she also says later on in the film, she says. She says when she was dealing with this as she was growing up, she was like, I don't want your pity. Thank you very much. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Right? She kind of built this wall emotionally after the death of her mother because, you know, she was a bit older and she, you know, again, here's, and this is where the, where, you know, it's hard for people to relate to is, you know, if you lose your parent or you lose somebody, you're not in a media spotlight. And right? she was 11. Right. She was 11. She was in the media. The, the cameras were outside. The can't, you know, everyone's just, the whole world is watching this. The whole world is knowing about this. The whole world is, is still to this day talking about this. Right? Yeah. And so she built this kind of wall. So she's a bit more guarded. But Courtney is was younger. She was seven at the time. And, you know, she's she was much more raw you know, like much more raw emotion there. And um, yeah, so there was definitely some very, I mean, there was the, the first time Courtney comes on in the movie in the, in the, in the second act, she, or first act, sorry, she, um, the first time she comes on camera and she's talking about her memories of her mother and the memories slipping away, like she wants to hold on to this and she wants it to come back. She looks at a picture and she's like, is that really my mom? Yeah. You know, I, you know, I, I, there was a long time through the making of the film that I couldn't get through that part without choking up. Um, in Natasha's um, book, she actually talks about what you were talking about, about how she always says she's fine and stuff like that. That's a big part of the book she wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think I think the making of this film and writing the book, you know, together, was a a big step for her. You know, like I mean, it was you know something that she's been holding in all these feelings and holding in and kind of guarded from guarding herself from from talking about this too much or being open about it, and she says that it was the birth of her daughter that really made her start to want to open up and, and start to tell her side of things because she wanted her daughter to understand 
where she where, how she felt and and who, who her mom was through the voices of the people that knew her her friends and her family and so that was you know I think it's been a, a very cathartic um, process for her but I, I but I can't imagine it, it must have been incredibly hard I mean I, I couldn't do it <laughs> I lost both my parents but I was an adult and I mean, yeah. I don't know how an 11-year-old or a 7-year-old deals with loss of one parent. Yeah. It just, to me, that's, I, my heart breaks for them still. I mean, even though I think this is good, I think it's a catharsis for both of them. All, well, probably Katie, too, all three of them. Um, but it's so hard. It's it's just the grieving process never ends. It never you never stop grieving for your parents. Never. And I think you can see it. I think you can see that in them. You know, I think that's one of the tragic parts about it. Is, you know, there's a bit about them that is kind of frozen in time. You know, emotionally. At that, I mean, she still calls them Daddy Wagner and Daddy, you know, Daddy and Mommy and you know, and it's it's uh, it's heartbreaking, but. That's that's you know the effect that, that 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 can have, and for her to for her to you know be open and share that is I thought was very brave, yeah, very brave, I'd, especially knowing I think so especially too. knowing about you know the tabloids and the people and the conspiracy theories and you know all of the you know hate and the case and all that stuff that that comes toward her father toward her her stepfather and, and Courtney's father Robert you know and speculations of, of all about that and you know I think it's it's pretty brave to do that you know and and I know a lot of people you know some of the negative reviews and we haven't gotten many of them which which I'm, I'm thankful but some of the negative feedback about the movie that we've we've got is oh well you know this is a controlled documentary this is from the point of view of of natasha of natasha so it's it's it, you know it's going to be friendly to robert wagner it's not a, it's not a real documentary because it's not it's not unbiased right the thing but, is is that people like that that are conspiracy conspiracy people they'll never let go that's just that's their thing they it, right. they can't let go and it's sad but intelligent I mean, people who are listening to the movie and reading the book are going to see oh <clears throat> look at all this evidence to the contrary okay this is this the other stuff's bullshit so that's what people are going to say the ones who aren't into conspiracies <laughs> yeah and you know you know I can say, you know, as I'm working on the film, you know, first of all, Natasha told us her story, right? And she gave us, and, and everybody in the movie told their story. You know, all of Natalie's closest friends and family members, none of the people we talked to even thought for a second that Wagner could have done anything to Natalie. Mm -hmm. And had they said something different, it would have been in the film. Natasha, we didn't cut anything out of anybody accusing her. Natasha actually, in the process of which, which again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised, but also, you know, compend her very highly for. She's a producer on the film, but she, not once during the editing of this film, ever came into the cutting room, and she never gave us a note. Like, she never told us to change anything. As I was cutting the film, I would complete a reel. We, we did the movie in, in five reels, five 20-minute reels. When I would complete a reel, I would send it to her. We would send it to her. You know, she could give notes if she wanted to. She gave no notes. Every reel, it was, thank you, tears, this is beautiful, keep going. Not once. So... She wasn't sitting there controlling the film, you know, over our shoulders saying, you can't say that or you need to say this. Or, uh, we had pretty much carte blanche freedom 
to tell the story that we had gotten from all of her friends and family and herself. And, and, and that's that was the, the thing about documentaries. You, you, you can't control that. You can't control the documentary. Documentaries tell their own story. Well, that's the other thing, too. You know, people say, oh, a documentary has to be, you know, can't have a point of view. And I totally reject that idea. Mm -hmm. I, I think that all films have a point of view. It's the director's point of view, right? And, or the filmmaker's point of view. All films, even the most objective documentaries, right? Like investigative documentaries. You're, as long as you have a camera and you're pointing at something and you're editing that, your point of view is coming through. Yeah. It's just a, whether it's subliminal or not, right? Like, okay, Michael Moore's documentary, don't, don't have a point of view, right? Do people attack those because they have a point of view? But we're very clear. This movie is not, never claims to be some objective investigative document. From the very start of the movie, she says, my name is Natasha Gregson Wagner and my mom was Natalie Wood. She's claiming with a point of this is this is her point of view. Mm -hmm. This is this is her story, you know, and the story of the people or you know, around her. I mean she's clearly she's directly interviewing Mark Crowley. She was at all the interviews, right? This is her point of view and her journey to get the stories from all the people that were friends and family of her mom. So, it, you know, you know, to say it's biased or it doesn't have another side of the opinion, and there, you know, there are two opinions that we wanted to get in the film, and they didn't want to participate. One was Lana's, Lana Wood, Natalie's sister, Lana. She was approached. We really wanted her to be involved. We really wanted to put her perspective into the film. She refused, and the other was Christopher Walken. You know, and Christopher Walken has basically refused to talk about the, that night for, you know, almost 25 years, 23 years. So, and that's, that wasn't a surprise. I mean, we, we knew that Kane Walken was going to be near next to impossible. He's pretty reclusive um, anyway. Yeah, and you know, I kind of, I kind of have to say, I, I do understand his perspective on not wanting to talk about it because, if you know, this happened at a time, you know, very early in his career, you know, he was kind of the hot new thing. He had just won an Oscar for Deer Hunter, and you know, then this tragedy happened. You know, he wasn't super close friends with Natalie. He worked with her for, you know the better part of a year shooting this movie. They were friendly, I'm sure, obviously. You know, they, he went on the boat with them out there. Um, but, you know, this tragedy happened, and then, it, you know, in every interview going forward, for the, for, from then on, he's asked about this tragedy, this accident. And he, he gives his answer over and over and over and over, Right, which mm -hmm. you, we see one of those in the film in the Entertainment Tonight interview. But after a while, he's realizing I can't ever do another interview or, or do another job and then go on a press tour and not be asked about this. It, it, it. He just doesn't want it to be what he's remembered for, you know. And 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 he may, you know, clearly he may not be able to fully shake it, right? That's that's. I you doubt know, it. Um, that's <laughs> obvious. But he's going to do everything in his power to not feed into it, right? To not to not say the same thing over and over again, right? And he's always been private. You know, he hasn't, yeah. he's not, he'll do a press junket for a movie, but he's not like one of those people who want publicity all the time. He leads a really private life from what I've read. So it's yeah, not surprising. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, his career, you know, his acting is his whole life. He doesn't have any children. I think he has cats or something. And this was his, you know, this was all he wanted to do, you know, was just be an actor, right? Like, he didn't have a family and everything. And that was, again, that was part of the argument on the boat, you know. He was saying, he was saying to RJ, now, now he needs to work. It's all about the art. It's, you know, it's all about acting, 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 acting. She needs to act. 
then RJ was sitting there going, "My, we have a family. <laughs> like, we have other priorities. Like, unlike you know your obsession with your career, like we all have other things going on. And you shouldn't be telling me and my wife what we should be doing with our lives and our family. You know, and that's what, what clearly the the tension there. I know, but um. We've come to the end. Um, okay. I I wanted to I I wanted to thank you um, yeah. uh, very yeah. much for coming and chatting with me. Um, I I really loved the documentary. I thought it was brilliant. Um, and I I want to just say that anybody recommend it to anybody. Uh, it's a really good movie. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and I yeah, and I hope it it, it t- you know teaches people about who Natalie was as a person, and also that they get something emotional out of her for themselves. You know. Yeah, I did. <laughs> they can relate to it personally. Yeah. That's my hope. Yeah. Um. Uh. So people can get in touch with you. Do you have a website, and do you have any social media that you can give out? I don't have any public social media. Um, you know, you can see my IMDb page, or I'm on LinkedIn, so as Jason Summers. Um, but no, I don't have any public um, social media. Okay. Well, I'm on Twitter. I am on Twitter, actually. Okay. Uh, I forgot about that. That's What's your Twitter <laughs> handle? So, if once somebody wants to say hi, it's, it's J Summers. Here. That's so, cute. Summer's here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's J for Jason. Summer's here. Um, that's my handle on Twitter, and it's a picture of my my puggle Maisie, and um, and yeah, and mostly it's just uh, this. You know, recently it's just discussions about Natalie. You know, or or retweets about Nat- the Natalie Wood movie right now. Well, you definitely will get a few from our little chat. Um, Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and thank you for for promoting the film. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. (laughs) 